reading this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Hell can't injustice be my lot, since justice satisfaction got, nor heaven and justice be my share, since mercy only brings me there. Yet heaven is mine by solemn oath, in justice and in mercy both. And God in Christ is all my trust, because he's merciful and just. Those words are from a poem by Ralph Erskine. He was a Presbyterian minister uh, in Scotland in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Uh, And in this poem, he is reflecting on what he calls the riddle of the saint's heavenly reward, the riddle of the saint's heavenly reward. And that is, why should we be rewarded in heaven? Given the sinfulness of our life here on earth, what reward could we possibly deserve from the Lord in life everlasting? And so he calls it a riddle. He concludes that it is only the righteousness of Christ applied to us by an act of God's mercy that merits any heavenly reward. Well, this morning in our text here in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on his own life and ministry and anticipating the end of both. And he expresses his sure hope in a heavenly reward. Now, he does this in the context of the passage we looked at last week, in which he had exhorted Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And I made the point that Timothy was to fulfill his ministry, not the Apostle Paul's ministry. There was no apostolic succession here. Timothy wasn't to take over uh, in the place of the Apostle Paul, but he was called to fulfill the work that God had given him to do. And now the Apostle calls attention to the fact that he has fulfilled his own calling. And then he shares this expectation of a heavenly reward, concluding that all Christians, all believers who love the Lord should have that same expectation. So even as the apostle speaks of his own ministry in these verses, his design is to encourage us, to encourage uh, all believers who would read these words of Scripture. He is seeking to give us hope that there is a future reward in store for those who stay the course and who love Christ to the end. Now you'll notice in these verses that there is a past, a present, and a future aspect to what the apostle talks about. In verse 6, it's in the present tense. It's, It's what he is experiencing in the moment as he writes this. But what he says there causes him to reflect on 
the past, on his life and ministry leading up to this moment. And so verse 7 is all in past tense. And then in verse 8, he begins to speak and meditate on his hope for a future reward. So we're going to rearrange this and simply take it from past to present to future, which means we're going to look at verse 7 first. And this is really the most well-known verse in this text. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's full of metaphors, uh, which should uh, call our minds back to things that he has previously written earlier in the letter. If you'll remember in chapter 2, Paul used a series of metaphors concerning a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. What he writes here in verse 7 should bring our mind back to what he had written earlier in chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, where he said, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So now, uh, in verse 7, In our text this morning, he applies similar metaphors to describe his own life and ministry. The first metaphor that he uses is that of a fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. Now, this could be a metaphor based on Olympic wrestling. Uh, Some commentators believe so, but I think the context of the letter and his use of the metaphor of a soldier throughout Uh, should probably be given precedent in what he is referring to here. And there are a couple of things to notice about how he uh, describes this. He says, I have fought the good fight. It's past tense, suggesting that his campaign has come to an end. The battle is over as far as the apostle is concerned. But he says that he did fight. The apostle Paul was not a spectator. He wasn't sitting on the the sidelines somewhere watching others engage in a battle for the truth of the gospel and for the spread of the kingdom throughout the Roman Empire. He was on the front lines. He fought that battle. This has been one of the major themes throughout this letter to Timothy, that as soldiers under the command of King Jesus, we must be prepared to endure hardships and affliction, to obey our commander, our king, to fulfill the duties and tasks to which he has called us, to go where and when he has sent us, whatever those duties may entail. And a soldier does not question the authority of his commander. He does what he is told. One of the errors of American thinking imported into the Christian life, I believe, is is this idea that we're all called to do great things for God. Now, there's some truth in that. We are called to do great things for God. The trickiness comes in how we define the word great. If God has called us to do something, then it is a great thing because he is a great God who has called us. But we want to define great to mean things that would garner the attention and the notice of others, 
things that would call attention to our work and our ministry. But what did our Lord say? In Matthew chapter 20, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Last week I quoted from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, in which he urged the believers in Thessalonica to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we have commanded you. Aspire to that. Most of us aspire to do things that would be recognized as great by other people, that would call attention to ourselves. Pastors want larger churches. How often do you ever see a pastor that's called to leave one church and go to another, and the one he goes to is smaller than the one he left? They're always called to a bigger church. Authors always want more readers for their books. Every single one of us who is on social media of any kind, we want more followers, more likes, more comments. We all aspire to greatness, but the apostle tells us to aspire to a quiet life, one that honors God. How many of us aspire to go unnoticed, to lead a life that honors God but may not get the attention of other people? Paul told Timothy to fulfill his ministry, not to step into the Apostle Paul's shoes, but to simply be the best Timothy that he could be. He wasn't to take over the apostleship. He was not to take over uh, the apostles' authority in the churches. He was simply to continue being Timothy, to do the work to which he had been called Back when I was working in the music business, a friend of mine in Nashville was speaking to an executive at a record label and asked this executive what they were looking for in new artists. If they're going to sign new artists to the label, what what kind of things are you looking for? And the executive said, we're looking for the next Vince Gill. I know I'm dating myself a little bit here, but my friend's response was, what's wrong with the one you have? And his point was, why are you looking to replicate what someone else has already done once you find somebody that's doing their own thing? Well, the same applies to the Christian life. We're not called to replicate someone else's ministry or someone else's calling. We are called to that which the Lord has appointed for us to do. Timothy served as an apostolic assistant to an evangelist, as we spoke of last week, uh, to the churches at a time period when the churches were transitioning now from the time of the apostles to having a completed canon of Scripture and being under the ordinary administration of elders and deacons. And so Timothy was called to assist and to serve the churches during that period of transition He was not called to continue laying the foundation which was laid by the apostles. To continue Paul's metaphor of a soldier, we're not all generals. In fact, most of us aren't even officers. We're just regular enlisted men with ordinary callings to which we are to be faithful. An army is made up of such. 
It can't function properly if all the privates begin to think that they're generals. An army needs foot soldiers. Most of us have been called to those roles. Paul had done his part, and now Timothy was to do his, and likewise, you and I are to do our part, whatever that may be. And Paul says that he had fought the good fight, by which we often understand him to be saying that he had fought well. And that may be the case, but I'm not sure that's the entirety of what the apostle meant. I think he meant that the fight that he had been engaged in was the only one worth fighting. It was the good fight in the same way that we might call a war, a just war. It was the good fight because it was the fight of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as he wrote to the Philippians. It was the good fight because it is a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's from chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. This was the fight that Paul had dedicated his life to, spreading the gospel, proclaiming Christ to all people. And he is exhorting us to do the same as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Fight the good fight. Don't waste your energy on a fight that doesn't matter. The second metaphor that Paul uses is that of an athlete. He says there in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And again, notice that it's in past tense. The action is complete. Paul is at the end of his life and his ministry, and he is reflecting on what has been accomplished. But notice what has not been accomplished. He doesn't say, I have won the race. He says, I have finished the race. And what he means is that he's at the end of the track, at the end of the course. He's run as far as was appointed to him to run. Not that he outrun ran others, but rather he completed the course that had been set before him. The race he has in view is not a sprint, but a marathon. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a race that calls for endurance. The very thing that Paul has been exhorting Timothy to throughout this letter, to endure. The Christian life is an endurance race. John Bunyan pictures it as a long pilgrimage in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Paul says the important thing is to finish the race, to cross the finish line without giving up. This is a doctrine that we know as the perseverance of the saints. Chapter 17 of our confession describes this doctrine, and it says this in paragraph 2. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit 
and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace. The perseverance of the saints by which we finish the race is rooted, he says, in the unchanging decree of God, the unchanging love of God, the righteousness of Christ and our union with him, his intercession for us, and the Spirit abiding with us. Do you see that? Perseverance of the saints is a thoroughly Trinitarian work. The Father decrees our salvation and loves us unchangeably. The Son offers his righteousness to us and intercedes on our behalf. And the Spirit abides with us and works the grace of God in us to keep us in the Father's love and in union with the Son. Praise God. The Trinity is the root of our perseverance. But the really interesting part of this doctrine of perseverance comes in paragraph 3 of the Confession where it describes the various ways in which believers, Christians, can sin, can give in to temptation, can have their conscience seared and their hearts hardened. But then it says this. It says, yet, in spite of all that, yet, they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. They shall renew their repentance. Martin Luther famously wrote in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So perseverance, finishing the race, simply means continuing to repent and believe to the end of your life. And that is what the Apostle Paul has done. Through all the afflictions, the toil, the persecutions, all the trouble that he has faced and endured, he has continued to repent and believe the gospel. He has finished the race. Which leads to his final metaphor there in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is, he has kept secure or guarded the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He has, as he instructed Timothy earlier in the letter, held fast to the pattern of sound words. He has not strayed from the gospel message. He has defended the purity of the gospel in the churches. He has proclaimed Christ crucified and resurrected. This might loosely be associated with the diligent farmer that he referenced in chapter 2, but it might be a return to the idea of the soldier who is guarding something of great value. He has kept it. He has guarded it in his own life and in the life of the church. In any case, Paul's life and ministry, his work, are near their end. And he is confident that he has fulfilled the work to which God called him. He has done, he has run his course. He has fulfilled his ministry. He has finished the race. 
And so we turn our attention then to the present, to this moment in which the apostle finds himself in prison, nearing the end of his life and his ministry. In verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Some of the commentators that I read spoke of the image of a libation being poured out to the gods in Greek mythology. Paul's not a pagan. He is a man of the word, thoroughly saturated in the Old Testament scriptures. And so when he says that he is being poured out, or that he is ready to be offered, he's using imagery from the Old Testament. It means that he is at the end of himself. His life has reached its end. But this imagery he uses is very intentional. The, The word that he uses is the word for poured out, like a drink offering is poured out in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, a drink offering was wine that was poured out as an offering to God, an offering of thanksgiving. It was not a sacrifice. It was an offering of thanksgiving that usually accompanied the sacrifice of a lamb, but it was, it was given as thanksgiving for the blessing of God. The first mention of a drink offering is in Genesis 35 when Jacob offers a drink offering in thanksgiving to God for bringing him safely back to Bethel. He has come back. He has met his brother Esau. Uh, God has delivered him safely from the wrath of his brother. And so uh, he comes to Bethel. He names this place Bethel, which means Beth-el, the house of Elohim or the house of God, which is significant as we think about the imagery that Paul is calling our attention to. Jacob pours out a drink offering. Paul says that he is being poured out like Jacob poured out his offering at the house of God, and Paul has served in the church of God. The next mention of a drink offering is in Exodus 29, at the consecration of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. Again, it's significant that a drink offering is associated with the the priesthood and being established in worship beginning in the temple, given the apostles' role in bringing the good news of Christ to the Gentiles and establishing the churches throughout the Roman Empire, introducing Gentiles to the worship of God in Christ Jesus, just as an Old Testament priest facilitated worship in the tabernacle. But even more significant is the only place that a drink offering is mentioned in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus details for us all of these various rituals and sacrifices that would be made throughout the life of the nation of Israel. But there's only one mention of a drink offering. It's in chapter 23 of Leviticus. This is the same chapter that tells us how to observe the Passover and the Day of Atonement. But the drink offering isn't mentioned there. It's mentioned as part of the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, where the Israelites would, would come and offer thanksgiving to God for the harvest. It says this in Leviticus 22, verses 10 through 13. When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you should bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. 
His grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And his drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. Well, how fitting then that the Apostle Paul, who was instrumentally used by God in the harvest of the Gentiles, in the first generation of the church, should compare himself to a drink offering being poured out in thanksgiving for a great harvest. The drink offering doesn't atone for sin. The lamb does that, who is Christ. But the drink offering accompanies that sacrifice. Thanksgiving for the harvest of the Gentile church. And this drink offering is poured out after the Sabbath on the first day of the week. Now, I don't want to read too much into all this, but I have no doubt that this Old Covenant imagery was in the Apostle's mind as he wrote this, as he reflected on his ministry and his life and the end of his life. Benjamin Keach, one of our particular Baptist forefathers, writing in 1681 in his book on scriptural metaphors, which I want to share the title of the book with you because it is so enjoyably Puritan. The name of the book is this, Tropologia, a key to open scripture metaphors, the first book containing sacred philology with a brief explication of each, the second and third books containing a practical improvement of the Old and New Testament. The Puritans really knew how to name a book, didn't they? But Keach comments on Paul's use of this metaphor of being poured out like a drink offering. He says, observe that in Leviticus... The first fruits were to be offered to the Lord on the morrow after the Sabbath. That is, our Christian Sabbath, or Lord's Day, vulgarly after the custom of the heathens, called Sunday. And that in that very year wherein Christ suffered, the day of offering first fruits fell on that day wherein our Lord rose from the dead, so making an excellent congruity with this elusive metaphor which Paul used. Keach then goes on at some length to uh, detail all of the different times that Paul uses this metaphor of first fruits and how it relates to Christ as the first fruits of those raised from the dead and to believers, to saints, as the first fruits of the harvest. And the metaphor might be, as Keach says, elusive, but I think it's beautiful that Paul likens his life being given for the sake of the gospel going to the Gentiles to a drink offering being poured out in thanksgiving for a great harvest. And then the apostle says, the time of my departure is at hand. And when he says the time of his departure has come, he means the departure of his soul from his body, the cutting asunder of those two known as death. The Greek word here is analysis. That's the Greek word. That's how it's pronounced. Analysis. That's where we get our English word, analysis. And it means exactly what you would think it would mean. It means to separate something into its constituent elements for the purpose of examination. So Paul says he is being separated. His soul separated from his body. His body will return to the earth, but his soul will return to God who gave it. He's at the end of his life. His ministry has come to an end. He has reflected on all that has been accomplished. 
And now he turns his mind to the future in verse 8. And he writes, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Back in chapter 2, when he used the metaphor of an athlete, Paul had said this, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, as he contemplates the end of his life, he meditates on the crown that awaits him in glory. He says that it is laid up there for safekeeping in the treasure room of heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. Paul takes this language of it being laid up in heaven from Psalm 31, verse 19, which says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Well, Paul had certainly trusted in the Lord in the presence of the sons of men as he fulfilled his ministry to the Gentiles in the face of overwhelming persecution and suffering. He had trusted in Christ alone. And now he says that God's goodness, a crown of righteousness, is laid up for him. He calls it a crown of righteousness, alluding to the victor's crown or the wreath that is given to the champion who wins the Olympic Games or to the soldier who returns victorious from battle. Elsewhere, James speaks of the crown of life that awaits those who endure. Peter writes of the crown of glory that will be received by those who faithfully serve their calling. But here Paul calls this heavenly reward a crown of righteousness. Yes, there will be rewards in heaven, crowns given for the deeds done in the body. Those rewards are not for our justification, but they follow after it. John Calvin writes, Justification by free grace, which is bestowed on us through faith, is not at variance with the rewarding of works, but on the contrary, those two statements perfectly agree that a man is justified freely through the grace of Christ, and yet that God will render to him the reward of works, For as soon as God has received us into favor, he likewise accepts our works, so as even to deign to give them a reward, though it is not due them. This is what Ralph Erskine was wrestling with in his poem, The Riddle of the Believer's Rewards. Our works are not due a reward from God, and yet God in his grace and his mercy has designed that he would reward his children. Calvin continues and says, The goodness of God by which he graciously embraces a man, not imputing to him his sins, is not inconsistent with that rewarding of works which he will render by the same kindness with which he made the promise. Now, some people may be a little uncomfortable with this idea of rewards in heaven, but the Bible clearly says that there will be rewards various degrees of rewards even given to those who persevere. And Paul says that they are dispensed by 
Christ himself, the righteous judge. For as Jesus said in John chapter 5, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And he is a righteous judge, for he is the Son of righteousness, who always does what is good and right and true. And on that day, the day of his triumphant return, he will judge the living and the dead. As Paul said in chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Paul had based his his charge to Timothy to fulfill his ministry on this idea that Christ himself will return on a day appointed by the Father to judge both the living and the dead. And on that great day of judgment, he will reward those who trusted in him. The prophet Daniel is told at the end of his visions, he asks for more understanding, more information. And he's told, Daniel, you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. At the end of days, when Christ comes in judgment, then those who are his will rise to new life and to their inheritance in the kingdom of light. Paul writes in the Corinthians in his first letter to them, chapter 15, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And Paul offers this encouragement to Timothy and to us. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your calling, whatever it may be. I have fulfilled mine, he says, And now I am looking forward with eager hope to the reward of eternal life and a crown of righteousness. But what is this crown of righteousness? Well, Matthew Henry says this, It is called a crown of righteousness because it will be the recompense of our services, which God is not unrighteous to forget, and because our holiness and righteousness will there be perfected. And will be our crown. Our holiness and righteousness will be perfected and will be our crown. What a glorious thought. Perfected in righteousness. Leave behind this body of death, as Paul calls it elsewhere, to be made new in the likeness of our Lord, to sin no more. This is the crown of righteousness, our glorification. Paul describes it this way again in 1 Corinthians. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. And there is a spiritual body, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The Spirit, through the Apostle, says that this glorification awaits all those who love Christ's appearing, who long for the return of the King. Paul writes to Titus, saying in chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So while we complete our pilgrimage here on this earth, we live as God's redeemed people, called out of the world to live holy lives by the grace of God at work in us, applied to us by the Spirit for His glory. And we live those lives with a holy expectation, an eager anticipation of the second coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. At which time, when He returns, we will be made new, glorified to sinless perfection and crowned with righteousness. But to what end? So that we can walk through the new heavens and the new earth as princes with crowns on our heads? No, not at all. Rather, those crowns of righteousness that we are given will be cast at the feet of our Lord, for He is the only one who is worthy of praise. John and the book of Revelation is experiencing a vision of heaven and he writes this. He says, Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle." The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory 
and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Along with the elders and John's vision, we too will cast our crowns at the feet of the King of Kings. For he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power this day and every day, forever, world without end. So be encouraged, saints, by the apostles' words, knowing this, that even now our Lord is seated in the heavenly places, interceding on your behalf, and he has promised to return in righteousness for his own. So fulfill your ministry. Endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and look forward with hope to that great day when he will appear with the angels in glory to judge both the living and the dead on which day you will receive a crown of righteousness being made new in his image and his likeness glorified and without sin which crown you will then cast at his feet as you join together with saints from every tribe, tongue, nation, and time to worship the one who sits on the throne who is worthy, who will be worshipped by all those who have loved his appearing. And he who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. Let's pray.